You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Thank you, Clay, for leading us this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 25 through 36 uh, this morning. I think uh, this is uh, maybe the most difficult passage uh, that we studied in Romans, especially at least in these chapters 9 through 11. Um, these might be the most difficult and debated of them all. Um, every, uh, nearly every single one of, of, of these phrases has come under some kind of debate about what they mean. Everything from what is the fullness of the Gentiles, uh, verse 26, what, is, what did Paul mean when he says, in this way, or all Israel will be saved, or verse 32, that God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Um, I was uh, counting uh, this a week before, and I've utilized about 50 commentaries and books uh, so far in uh, the preparation for the series of messages in Romans. And there's just no clear consensus among those authors of what these verses mean, uh, at least in the details. And, and it reminds us of a couple of important things when we come to like this. Uh, first, it, it, uh, it reminds us of uh, that when it comes to interpreting prophecy, which is really what Paul is doing here in these closing verses, it's a prophetic revelation about the future. And when it comes to interpreting prophecy in the Bible, the biblical prophecy is only given its fullest meaning only when that prophecy has been fulfilled. In other words, we don't see clearly the details of the prophecy until it's been fulfilled, until it becomes a reality. And that's not to say that we can't understand some of the things of what's being said here. It's just difficult to understand them as clearly as we would like to uh, in his word. And so when we look at these passages we, we try to do so with caution with humility in our approach not demanding that we've got the right exact answer here uh, but that we're hopefully charting in the right uh, direction the second thing i want to say about uh, about this this reminds us of is is that differing interpretations over uh, the end times over end time prophecies should not divide us as christians that is, that Christians can hold differing views on, on, on what the end times, what these interpretations of these passages, and still worship together, still have relationship together, and be brothers and sisters in Christ. The reason for that is because we are more unified, we are unified uh, on, on more important matters, like the, the Trinity, like the deity of Christ, like the, the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone. We, 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 are, we, we are locked in on more important fundamental truths. And so disagreements over the end times, uh, or, or even how, uh, from chapter 9, how God's sovereignty impacts man's responsibility, or, or as some call free will, that those issues are not meant to divide us in the church. 
That, that, that we can hold disagreements on those things and still worship together. Need, need not bring division. And so I hope that you keep that in mind even as we study this, these verses today. My commitment to you, as it has been from the very beginning, is to preach the whole counsel of God, not to leave out parts. And I realized how easy it would have been for me to get to chapter 9, 10, and 11 and said, you know what, I think we're just going to skip those and go on to chapter 12. <laughs> um, no, all of God's word is God's word and is valuable. Amen? Even the parts that are hard. And uh, my commitment to you has been is to, pre to present as best that I know how what this text, what the text that we're studying for this particular week is saying to us. And uh, here's the other thing that that means, and I hope that you understand this, as we get into a passage like this, is that I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't do a deep dive into every single one of the debates that are in this passage and tell you all of the multiple interpretations of them. Because you realize for me to do that would mean that we're going to be in Romans for about 15 years. And I didn't intend to be in Romans 15 years, uh, and I don't think you would appreciate that uh, per perhaps either. And, uh, and, and secondly, I don't think it would be profitable for us to do that kind of a deep dive. But my goal is to present Paul's message with as much clarity uh, as, as, I, as possible and, and then trusting that some of these more difficult details are going to have to wait and we're going to know and they're going to become clear when Jesus comes. Amen? Won't that be great? And so with that kind of approach and heart, that's how we'll look at this task today. And it still is a tall task. And we do so with the Spirit's help. Romans 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask, Lord, for your help today as always that your spirit that is living in those of us who have believed that you would grant us, Lord, a measure of understanding what you desire for us to understand from this text and, and, and how you want to carefully apply it to our lives and hearts. 
And uh, we trust you and ask you, Lord, to do that today. And I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word, it would simply go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons this passage is important is because of its implications when it comes to the end of time. Theologians call that eschatology, the study of last things, the the study of the end. And much of the debate about the end times concerns what's going to happen, if anything, to ethnic Israel, to the Israelites, God's ancient people, whom so many of His promises were geared to in the Old Testament. What's going to be the future of Israel? And this was an important question. It was a question that was important and intriguing in Paul's day when he wrote these, and it's also important in our own day. And so this is Paul giving some explanation here. In Romans 11, he's provided some answers uh, to that question. Now, when Paul uses the word mystery, you saw that right from the beginning, verse 25, what he means by that, he's speaking of something that was hidden but has now been revealed. So if you look over, for example, chapter 16, it's just a couple of pages over, toward the very end of Romans, verse 25, uh, he gives some explanation as to what a mystery is. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery. Now notice how he defines it that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. That helps us to understand a little bit what he means by mystery. He's referring to something in the past that has been foreshadowed, or something that has been hidden or covered, but now it's been brought out into the open, brought out to the open. For Paul, that mystery is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was veiled in the Old Testament, but in the New, it's been revealed because Christ has come. And so sometimes Paul uses mystery to speak of the whole gospel. Sometimes he uses it to speak of parts of the gospel. Here's another example, 1 Corinthians 1551, where he speaks of our glorification. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, he says. When Christ comes, we'll be immediately glorified, changed in his presence. I think what Paul's doing here in Romans chapter 11, when he's talking about the mystery Here, he's talking about a specific part of the gospel, about how the gospel is going to penetrate to the ends of the earth, and how it's going to include, ultimately, not just Gentiles, but the Jews and to God's people. Remember as well, he's speaking to the Gentiles, he's speaking to us, and his whole point in here is that we would not look down on the Jewish people, that we would somehow become prideful that we have received the gospel and they haven't. In fact, verse 25 at the beginning, he says, Let you be, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. He's, his purpose in explaining all of this in chapter 11 is that the Gentiles, that's us, that we would not be arrogant about these things, that we would not write off the Jewish 
people. Verse 18, he said, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Right? The fact that you and I, that you've come into the promise of God, that you've been grafted into that olive tree, the people of God, and the Jews, by and large, have not been, he says uh, that, that these things should not make us arrogant. They should not make us argumentative, but instead we would rather be, we should be astonished by this and astonished at God's plan of how he's going to bring all of this together in the end. In fact, that we would be astonished, verse 33, at the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God in all of this. And so this is his purpose. This is why he is telling us this. And so with that in mind, let's look at the text and what it says. First, I want you to notice the mystery of salvation revealed. Verse 25, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Here's what the mystery is. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Notice three parts of this mystery. First, he says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Paul has already been explaining this. I know it's been a couple of weeks ago, but we talked about it, verses 1 through 10. This hardening that has come upon the Jewish people. It's not a hardening that has come upon every Jew, because remember, verse 1, Paul says, him himself, he's a Jew, and he's come to believe the gospel. In verse 5, he talked about uh, a remnant of believers of, of, Jew, of the Jewish people, other Jews like Paul who had believed and been saved by the gospel. He says in verses 7 and 8, though, he says the elect obtained it, that is, they've obtained salvation, but the rest, the rest of the Jews, were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. So this partial hardening, that's what he's been talking about. It's been brought by God on the Israelites. It's a spiritual hardness. It's a spiritual blindness so that keeps them from seeing, that keeps them from believing. But here's the thing. It does not mean that God has finished with his people, the Israelites. Verse 11, he asked that question. He said, did they stumble? in order that they might fall. In other words, fall beyond recovery. Is God done with, with the Israelites? He says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. This is the second part of the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Notice, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 12, Paul's talked about um, the full inclusion of the Jews, but here he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles. What in the world does he mean by that? Well, he gives us another hint over in chapter 15 uh, in Romans. In chapter 15, if you let your fingers do the walk in there, a couple pages over, verses 17 through 21, there's a section there in Paul that he's talking about his ministry to the Gentiles. He says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, 
so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to uh, a city I can't pronounce there, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Paul, Paul is he's, he's kind of talking there about the fact that everywhere that God sends him to go with the gospel, that people are, are getting saved. And so he says, I make it my aim to go where Christ has not been preached so that people there will be saved, he's saying. And so this partial hardening that has come upon Israel is giving him opportunity to take the gospel to the Gentiles. At least, he says, until, notice the word there, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. There's a lot of debate about what that until means, but it's implying, I think, that there's a time coming when Paul says, or Paul believes, that this work of the gospel going to the Gentiles will be over with. It'll be complete that it will have gone forth, that all whom God had intended to save and all who come to him in faith and repentance, that those people will have come until, and when that happens, God will then lift this veil, this hardening on the Israelites. And that leads to the third part of the mystery. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, as you might imagine, there's a lot of views about what in the world that means. Um, and I, I would just say a couple of things to you about what I think it, it might mean. First, I don't think he means every single Israelite. That phrase, all Israel, it's kind of it's a biblical expression that, that, that it doesn't refer to every single Israelite who have ever lived or every single Israelite who was living at the time, but it's more of, a, of this picture about the totality or the fullness, similar to the fullness of the, the Gentiles, the, the fullness, the totality of, of the Israelites, that, that when this fullness of the Gentile comes, when Paul has been sent, the gospel has gone forth to everywhere God intends for it to go, that God will lift this hardening of Israel on the Israelites and multitudes of them, multitudes of the Israelites will come to Christ as their Savior and Lord. Now, there's a lot in this. Paul, I think, again, Paul has, has de deconstructed the idea that this has a, a a corporate kind of a meaning that all Israel means the whole nation because he said back in chapter 9 verse 6 that his purpose of election extends to individuals and not necessarily groups Isaac not Ishmael Jacob not Esau but so what Paul seems to have in mind here is that there's going to be a great multitude of ethnic Israel that's going to come to Christ I think that's what Paul was referring to in verses 12 and 15. When he says, verse 15, if their rejection, if their, the Israelite rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? He seems to be speaking about this time in the future. Maybe it will be an event. Maybe it will be a series of events. 
But, but God is going to work in such a way, in such a powerful way, that it's going to be like life from the dead. Like this old olive tree, this olive tree that looks like it's, it's all these branches that have been cut off, and the poor little thing looks like that nobody's coming into the people of God, that all of a sudden when the fullness of the Gentiles has come into that tree, there's going to be the fullness of the Israelites, a multitude of them, he's saying. A multitude. Um, and this multitude will reveal once and for all that the gospel really is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew and also for the Greek. This is what gets Paul excited. This is what gives him hope. This is what he's saying. This is why I'm keeping preaching the gospel, he says. This is why I'm going to the synagogues to tell the Jews about Jesus. This is why I go to the streets to tell people about Jesus. All of these great promises. Think of the, of the promises to Abraham that through his seed, the nations will be blessed. Paul sees this vision, this time, that this blessing uh, would mean a worldwide expansion and triumph of the gospel. He sees this day when the fullness of the Gentiles are going to come and God's going to lift the hardness over Israel and the fullness of them, the fullness of the Jews are going to become, and they're going to be into this olive tree, the people of God. And then the whole world is going to know how great is our God and his gospel. I thought I'd get an amen for something. I'm working hard up here. This is hard. Hard. You're, it's hard to listen to, isn't it? I, I understand. You're lacking sleep. It's warm. But this leads him to great doxology, he says. But before he gets to the doxology, he wants to explain it even more. The mystery of salvation explained. And as Paul has done several times, he, he shares a word from the Old Testament. This time he shares Isaiah 59, 20. Look at verse 26. As it is written, the deliverer, here's the quote, the deliverer will come from Zion he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And one of the things that's interesting about Isaiah 59, 20 is here's how it reads in, uh, in the original there. It says, and a redeemer will come to, to Zion to those in Jacob. But notice how Paul quotes it, how he cites it. He says the deliverer will come from Zion, doesn't he? So there's a lot of debate about this, and I, I, think, it, I think it makes the most sense to conclude that, that Paul is simply taking a verse out of Isaiah that was looking forward to the coming of Christ, to, and he's changed it from reflecting on the fact that Jesus has already come. By the time of Paul's writing, Christ has come. The, the truth has already come. Jesus has come. He's lived. He's died on the cross. He's buried in Zion, and he rose again. Now, there's a lot of debate about this point. I'm, I can't be dogmatic on it, but, but I think that what Paul is saying is that this event or this time frame of which all Israel is going to be saved, this full inclusion of the Israelites is coming, that, that it seems like he's saying that it's going to happen before the return of Christ. Now that has some implications on your end time 
uh, your view of Revelation and the end time. And I'm going to let you wrestle with those things. But, but I'm, I'm not sure. But it seems to me that's what he's saying. And he strengthens that argument uh, by reminding us, and I think this is really important, that the Jews will be saved in exactly the same way the Gentiles are saved. Isaiah 59.20 is about God's work, uh, God's saving righteousness that comes through a deliverer. Who is that deliverer, church? It's Jesus, right? He will banish, notice he says, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. How is he going to banish ungodliness? He does it through his cross, right? And this, he says, verse 27, will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In other words, the Jews will be saved the same way that Gentiles are saved. It is through the new covenant that is in Christ's blood. Once again, Paul is not revealing that there are two different ways of salvation for these two groups of people, Gentiles and Jew. Both both Jew and Gentile can and only will be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There's some chimes to back that up. Amen. Sound effects. Um, So in light of this, Paul comes back to the present, doesn't he? Verse 28. And he says, this is, this is the why it's not, this is not the end of the story. As regards to the gospel, they, the Jews, currently, he says, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards of election, they, the Jews, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He's, he's reflect, reflecting there because of God's promises to their forefathers, the patriarchs, because of his gifts and calling. God is currently saving some Jews, but he will save more when the fullness of the Gentiles comes. And he says, this is what's happened to us, he says, verse 30. For just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but now you've received mercy because of there, the Jews' disobedience, so they, the Jews, too, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Paul has already said this. He, remember, he told them that, that the gospel going to the Gentiles was going to make the Jews jealous, envious. And so he would use that to soften their hearts to receive his mercy. And then Paul sums it all up. And really, it's a summary of the entire book of Romans up to this point. Verse 32, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. I think that's a, a summary there of, of that God consigned all to disobedience is another way of repeating all that he said back in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. We would say it like this, uh, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? both Jew and Gentile. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, he's, Paul has been laying out this, the glory of this salvation, which is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says that God may have mercy on all. Now, don't confuse the language here. Don't try to twist this and manipulate this into something. Paul is not talking about a universal salvation. He's not saying and promising that God's going to save everyone in the end. I mean, that can't be what Paul means, because for him to say that now, we would, 
We've just wasted all of this time studying Romans 1 all the way to chapter 11 because it would contradict everything that he said. Right, church? Do you understand? But rather, he's simply saying that both Jew and Gentile who come to Christ, all of the elect, all of those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ, God is not favoring one group over the other. F.F. Bruce put it like this, God shows mercy, his mercy is to all without distinction, not all without exception, he says. All who come to Christ. Once again, this is God bringing consummation to his salvation plan. This is what Paul is looking at. He's looking way down the road to the end, and he's describing the climax of all that Christ came to do, all that he came to accomplish. This is going to result someday, he said, in the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And when these two fullnesses are realized, it's going to consist of large numbers, a large number. Revelation 7 says, a multitude in whom no one can count all of those who were formerly in Adam but now who are in Christ experiencing grace for all eternity he says and the thought of such Paul can hardly contain himself which leads third to the God of salvation glorified he says oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments how inscrutable his ways as he's sitting back and thinking about all of this and how overwhelming it is he says his riches his wisdom his knowledge they're inexhaustible God's judgments his his pathways his plans they're beyond tracing no human being could ever come up with such a plan like this for salvation that God would do this in the beauty of his grace Paul stands absolutely amazed and we should be too, church. He once again refers us to the Old Testament scriptures, this time to Isaiah 40, verse 13, Job 41, 11. It's a quiz, the pop quiz. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who, church? Anybody? No one. No one, right? This is Isaiah marveling at God's grace being shown to Israel in the future. And Paul applies it here. Who could have ever come up with this? Who could have ever come up with this glorious salvation? No one but God. Or, he says, verse 35, second question on the quiz, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? No, nobody. This is Job 41.1. This is the marvel of this. This is God showing mercy to us. He is not doing this because he owes us. God owes no man, he says. Our salvation is a gift of his grace. Out of the abundance of his riches and kindness and mercy that we've been singing about this morning. Verse 36 for from him and through him and to him are all things. All of this glorious gospel truth is from him, from God. All of the ways in which these truths are worked out are worked out through him, through Christ. And thirdly, all of these things are to him. 
To him be glory forevermore. We have an amazing God, don't we? I think to myself, why in the world did Paul include this, <laughs> these details in here for us? Why would he want us to know these things? Who could have ever come up with such a plan and in such a way that we somehow, who are not a part of the Jewish people, that we would somehow be the beneficiaries of such mercy and grace, and that in the end, God would bring the Jews in as well, and that through all of this, he's going to get all of the glory for it. At the end of the day, these things should be leading us to our knees with Paul, because that's where he is, isn't he? We've already seen he's been on his knees pleading for the lost to be saved. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 10, verse 1. He's grieving and he's going and he's proclaiming the gospel. And then at the same time, he's on his knees praising God for such an amazing salvation. A glorious plan. That he's looking out and seeing that one day will culminate of all of God's people gathering around the throne and around the Lamb, worshiping Him for all eternity. Revelation 7, verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And here's what he says about us. They shall hunger no more neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a glorious picture. And you know, church, each time that we gather like this, we are practicing... And we are encouraging one another, again, as Hebrews tells us, and all the more as you see the day approaching, this day. What a glorious thought. If you're here today, if you're watching, perhaps, on the, uh, online, and, and the mystery of salvation has become plain to you today, what should you do? How should you respond in light of this? The scripture says, here's the starting point. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. This is an invitation, isn't it? To put your faith in Jesus Christ and follow him. And as we sing this last song together, if you've done that, then I pray this is a great time of worship for you and thankfulness once again, to praise God for your salvation and for all that he's doing. But for some of you, perhaps, it's a time to make that commitment to Christ. And I'll be right down front here to meet you as we sing this song. Let's pray together.
Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.